since, uh, since I get to preach, I get to pick, pick my favorite songs. So there they, there they are. this week particularly uplifted by the love of this church um, and I'm grateful for that and you know some people ask me you know you didn't really seem nervous that time and you know, my answer would be well I am nervous <laughs> I am nervous but not necessarily to speak in front of you I'm nervous because I want to get this right and um, and it's a it's a fearful thing but um but you know, this is you guys are my family, so um, there's no there's no nerves here. Um, you guys know my my faults. You guys know um, you see me through all that stuff. So there's no mystery. Okay. Well, today the title of my sermon is "How to Become Rich or How to Become Wealthy in Five Easy Steps." And you might have uh, walked in here and thought, "What church did I come into?" Uh, where am I? Um, what are we talking about? But today we are going to talk about wealth. Wealth is what we're going to talk about. That's the topic. And you know, wealth is a topic that really needs no introduction, right? Because all, so much of our lives revolve around money, around wealth. In fact, most of our waking hours are spent trying to obtain wealth. Many other hours are spent trying to protect that wealth. This is where, how, how our life goes. Uh, we make money, we spend it, we invest it, we save it, we count it, we store it, we manage it, or find people to manage it. We figure out how to keep more of it. And Christian or non-Christian, this is how we spend most of our lives, is it not? And that's why some say money makes the world go what? Go round. So if you want to learn about wealth, we would naturally go to somebody who has a lot of it, who is rich. And without question, the richest person ever to live in the history of the world is, who do you think that is? <laughs> well, it's a trick question because the answer is Jesus. And why do I say that? Because remember a few years ago, the pastor preached through Hebrews. And in Hebrews 1.1, it says, God has appointed his son, what? Heir. That's right, heir of all things. So Jesus, who is God's son, owns everything. He owns everything. He owns every molecule in this world, in this universe, as well as every molecule in the next universe. He owns it all. And as the richest man ever, he is particularly, or in fact, extreme, extremely qualified to give us advice about wealth. And he's more than happy to do so. In fact, he's going to give us a five-step plan of how to become wealthy. But prepare to be surprised because what he says about wealth is nothing like what we would ever hear from any modern day financial guru. So are you ready? Are you ready to hear what Jesus has to say about wealth? Let's turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 in verse 23. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you where we are in this passage. This is sort of picking up from last time. And remember that Last time, we looked at this verse starting from verse 17. And we find Jesus in Judea, a few weeks away from the cross. 
He's on this final journey to Jerusalem with his disciples. And if you were here last time, you remember that one morning, uh, Jesus was getting ready to set out again after a night's rest. And suddenly, a very unusual man stopped him. This man was unusual because he was rich. He owned much property. And Matthew tells us he was young. And Luke tells us he was a ruler. He was likely a chief elder or a chief priest in a synagogue. So he is the rich young ruler. And this man had, at a young age, found himself at the top of the world, the top of the financial world and the top of the religious world. This was an impressive man. Do you think that somebody like this showing up might have impressed the disciples? It sure did. And make no mistake, I think the disciples are standing around here watching this man with their jaws open. This is like, you know, suddenly Mark Zuckerberg walking up to you, and they know how wealthy this man is. And they're impressed. They might even have been tempted to become covetous or envious of this man's wealth. But despite this man's great achievements, despite the heights to which he's rose, he's insecure about his eternal status. And he knows rightly everybody falls into two buckets when they die, right? There's heaven or there's hell. There's the kingdom of God or then there's the outer darkness. There's eternal life and peace or there's eternal torment and suffering for your sins. And this man is not sure that he's in the right bucket. He's not sure. So he comes to Jesus with one question in verse 17, if you look in your text. He asks Jesus, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows that this man thought he was righteous. But in reality, he was a wicked idolater at heart. Because this man loved, even would say, you might even say he worshipped his money. His money. So Jesus gives this man his answer. This is the answer to your question. And it's really the same answer that he gives everyone who asks this question from the very beginning of his ministry. And the answer to the question, how do you get eternal life, is repent and believe the gospel. In fact, that's what he says even back in Mark 1. Repent and believe the gospel. So how do you repent? For this man, it was to smash his idol. In verse 21, he said, he says to this man to sell all you have and give to the poor. Smash your idol. Give up what has become an idol in your heart. In your case, your possessions. And then, follow me. Believe the gospel. And that's the only way to be saved. It's not about being righteous so that you can earn your salvation, which is what this man thought. You repent and you have faith in Jesus that he'll, take, he'll make a way to take away your sins. And as the saying goes, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Well, how did the rich man respond? If you remember, look in verse 22. Unfortunately, he did not respond with repentance and faith, but he was saddened and went away grieving. And you see, this man made, for, for all of his financial wisdom, for all of his business savvy, he's made the worst deal of his lifetime. Because while he gained the whole world, he had forfeited his soul. That's what this man did. So now we find this young man leaves. He's out of the picture. And what happens next? This is so interesting. Jesus now turns grimly to his disciples. And if you imagine, his eyes are ablaze like with fire. 
And what he says next is going to send them into absolute shock. Let's listen in. We'll start reading from Mark 10, verse 23. Mark 10, verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And disciples, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus again, answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, this is a formidable passage before us. Pray that you would give us understanding, give us wisdom, help the way I explain this, Lord, to be understandable and clear, help it to be accurate. And Lord, pray that you would have this text influence our hearts, change the way we live our lives so that we might become more pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, before we dive into the text, I want to give you a little bit of a broader context of, of what's going on here in the disciples' heart in Mark. Now remember, as we said before, that Jesus' time with his disciples is almost up. The cross is a few weeks away. But so far, this bumbling lot of disciples has honestly not shown a lot of promise. By now, Jesus had twice prophesied his own death and resurrection. And, you know, you don't have to turn there. I just tell you, once in Mark 8.31 and once in Mark 9.31. So just very recently, this has occurred. And Jesus made it clear he was going to Jerusalem for the intention not to bring in an earthly kingdom, but to be mocked, to be insulted, to be arrested, to suffer, and then to die. His was a journey of self-sacrifice not a journey of self-exaltation. But his disciples consistently opposed, even completely missed this message. And they frankly wanted nothing of sacrifice. They were still hoping that somehow Jesus would usher in this earthly kingdom and they would immediately be given the prominence and wealth and, and authority that they craved. But worse yet, the disciples were consistently demonstrating a spirit of worldliness, of jealousy, of, stop, of snobbishness, of self-exalting, self-seeking, self-promoting, self-loving pride. And this gets really ugly. It's all over Mark's chapters 8 to 10. Um, we won't go through it, but that's where you find it. They argue over who is the greatest. They become prideful and arrogant and try to exclude others from the group over and over. And throughout all of this, Jesus is so patient. And he patiently teaches them. And, and what does he teach them? Let me just give you some examples. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in, in Mark 9, 35. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all 
and servant of all. Jesus wants them to understand that. Here's another one. Listen carefully to this one because it's relevant to our text today. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his what? Possessions. Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. That's Luke 12, 15. See, that's what Jesus was trying to do. He's trying to invert, turn upside down their worldly ideas of what it meant to be great. And because they thought it was admirable to have power. They thought it was admirable to have wealth. That's what they were thinking. And so Jesus knows this rich young ruler comes and the gears in their disciples' heads are turning. They're saying, wow, look at this man. What a wealthy man. He's so rich. And as I said before, very likeness, very likely covetousness crept in. I wish I had what he had. Maybe they're even thinking, wow, Jesus really left let something good walk away there. And they're impressed for all the wrong reasons, and, and that's why Jesus, in this passage, is going to set them straight. So after the man leaves, the Lord spins on his heel towards his disciples, and he's determined to radically adjust how they think about wealth. So in this section, we're going to see five simple steps that Jesus gives to becoming truly wealthy. And let's go back to Mark 10, verse 23. So this is the first step to becoming truly wealthy. It's to, rele- to realize that true wealth is not found in earthly possessions. Realize that true wealth is not found in earthly possessions. Mark 10.23 says, And Jesus, looking around. By the way, stop right there for a second. Looking. This is not a casual glance. This is an intense glare. This is like Jesus using x-ray vision to look into his disciples' souls one at a time. And in fact, this is the same word used in Mark 11.11 when Jesus is inspecting the temple in Jerusalem. The day before he comes back with fury to drive out the money changers who he says made his temple a den of robbers. It's the same word here, lasers coming out of his eyes. And because Jesus knows they're admiring this man's wealth, this is almost a rebuke what he's going to say next. And what he says next flies totally in the face of what's in their hearts. He says to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. What? This goes completely against their thinking. It's, imagine the shock in their minds. It's hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. And this is surprising because their understanding at the time, and in fact, the cultural understanding, the Jewish understanding, was that if you were rich, it meant you were doing something right. It meant that God was pleased with you. That's why you were rich. God must like you better than everybody else. And not only that, a rich man has all the means that you need to keep the law. So sacrifices, for instance, cost money. Uh, They actually cost a lot of money if you buy them at the temple at a steep markup. And so the thought was the more wealth you had, the more religious you could be. The more sacrifices and offerings you could offer, the more you would merit eternal life. That's what they thought. And that's why in verse 24, the disciples reacted the way they did. The disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed. They were exceedingly astonished. But then, Jesus doesn't stop there. He ups the ante. So if that shocked them, then what he says next is going to 
knock their socks off. Look again in verse 24. Jesus says, Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, now hold on one second. Let me just point out that here he says how hard it is. He doesn't qualify it with rich. So everybody, okay? But just keep that in the back of your mind and we'll come back to that. But he is focusing on the rich here because the next verse, verse 25, Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Before, Jesus said it was difficult. But what is this business about a camel? What is he saying now? Well, who has ever, who has ever seen a camel go through the eye of a needle? Nobody's raising their hands because it's impossible. And that's exactly what he's saying. This is not just difficult. This is impossible. This is a common colloquial expression. It's just kind of like when today we say, well, you know, such and such is going to happen when pigs fly. Well, what am I saying? I'm saying it'll never happen. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's impossible. So Jesus is saying, get this, that it's so difficult even for the rich to enter the kingdom of God that you would have better luck trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. And there might have even been a camel nearby that he was pointing at when he said this. It's not inconceivable. Try shoving that camel through the needle. That's how hard it is. That's impossible. This goes against everything that the disciples thought about how God worked. That's why they were so stunned. And if you look back in verse 26, they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You see, this is what they were thinking. If it's impossible for the wealthy, then what hope is there for the poor? What hope is there for anybody, for the rest of us? You see, who can be saved? It's really a rhetorical question, meaning nobody. But, uh, but what's Jesus doing here? And what he's doing here, I want you to understand what he's doing here. He's not just saying it's impossible to get into the kingdom. That is what he's saying. But the greater picture of what he's doing is that he's doing what he does all the time. He's challenging the conventional wisdom of the disciples. He's turning that on its head. They think that riches makes it easier to get into eternal life. And he's saying, no, no, no. Wait a second. That's his goal. He's saying, you've got it all wrong. Riches or worldly possession is of no value at all to get into heaven. Because true wealth, the kind of wealth that God considers wealth, is not found in worldly possessions at all. And I just want to see you, see, I just want to show you how he makes, how the, the, actually the author of the scriptures makes this point in a different way. And this is very interesting. Because note that in verse 24, Jesus calls his disciples what? What does he, what does he call them? Children, right. This is a particular term of endearment and affection that he likes to use. But I think he used it intentionally here. Why? Well, all three gospel accounts in which you find the story follows directly after another account. And look in your Bible. What is the account directly before this one? Before the rich young ruler? Okay, Jesus blesses the little children. And I think this is an intentional contrast that he's making here. In fact, let's just read Mark 10, verse 13. Let me read this to you. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But, his, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, 
he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So what's going on here? Jesus, now people are bringing their children to Jesus um, to be blessed. And since great men, the disciples thought, don't mess with children, they're too important for that, the disciples decided to take it upon themselves to become Jesus' bodyguards, okay? To protect Jesus from these children. They thought these, these children, their only contribution to the world thus far was to eat, sleep, and poop, right? That's what children do. Um, that's what my children do. So they thought they weren't worthy of an audience with Jesus. And Jesus gets angry at them for this. He gets very angry. And why does he get angry? This is what he says. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What is he saying? He's saying, you've got it all wrong. It's not the rich. It's not the powerful. It's not the important that God favors. It's those who are humble and lowly and powerless. And, and this really brings us to the second step of our five-step plan. Um, not only are we to realize that true wealth is not to be found in worldly possessions, but we are to realize that true wealth is not obtained through worldly achievements. True wealth is not obtained through worldly achievements. I mean, think about the story of the children. Some of these children can't even walk. They have to be carried places. These children are helpless. They have nothing in themselves. They can't point to an external record of righteousness. They're humble. They're utterly dependent. And this is the picture of faith that Jesus is trying to paint for us. Helpless, humble, and dependent. That was the hymn that we just sang. And Jesus said, People who come like a child, people who come meek and humble and dependent and powerless, those will enter the kingdom. Otherwise, not at all. And contrast this with the rich young ruler, which is the, the story right after this. Proud, rich, important, external record of righteousness, a self-made man, trusting in his works, attached to his money. Do you see the contrast? That's the contrast. I'd like, at this point, I'd like to sort of pause for a, sitter, for a second and consider with you why it's so hard for the rich. Because the Bible does teach that wealth can be a stumbling block to saving faith. And remember in home groups a few weeks ago, we did the parable of the sower. And our church recently read this. And do you remember what Jesus said about the seed sown among the thorns? Just look at Matthew 13, 22. And just turn there for a second. We just want to, you know, keep your finger in Mark, but just turn over to Matthew 13, 22. This is, remember, the parable of the sower. And the one who, on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. My friend, do not underestimate the deceitfulness of wealth. It is called out explicitly as a stumbling block to saving faith. The more money you have, the more likely that it starts to own you rather than you owning it. It becomes more tempting to say, you're self-sufficient. You don't need God. 
That's the deception that money has, the deceptive power that money has. In fact, Jesus tells a parable, and I just want to read this parable to you in Luke 12, 16, that perfectly illustrates this. And let's just, um, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this to you for now. This is Luke 12, 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he became, began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Well, this rich man, he's, land is overflowing. He's getting crops and he doesn't know what to, to do with them. So this is what he says, verse 18. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to them, You, what? Fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? This man says to himself, I am rich now. I will take my ease, drink, and be merry. I will attend to my own comfort. After all, I'm financially secure. After all, I've worked hard to get where I am. Who deserves to stop and enjoy life if not me? And you know, many of us, maybe even sitting here, are just like this man. We secretly wish that we would come into money so that we don't have to work again, right? We can go on cruises until our golden years. But God says, you fool. You're a fool. Why? Because this very night your soul will be required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? What's going to become of all your hard work? It'll be given to another. And you don't really have control over who it's going to be given to. You'll be dead. So friends, are you storing up for yourselves treasures on earth? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven? One, Jesus says, is a good investment. And the other is a foolish one. Let's go back to Mark 10, 12, and let's press on in the text. Jesus replies, well, okay, so the disciples said, who can be saved? That's the question that's hanging in the air. And Jesus replies in verse 27. This is his reply. It's very interesting. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. Stop right there for a second. With people, it is impossible. See, wealth cannot be obtained through worldly achievements. You cannot do anything. It is impossible. Not just for the rich, but for everybody. Yes, it's impossible to be saved. Rich, poor, anybody. There is no merit, no riches, no achievements that we can bring that would be at all helpful. But look at what he says next. And this is the hope. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And this brings us to the third step of our five-step plan to becoming wealthy. The, the third step is to realize that true wealth is found in Jesus' blood. True wealth is found in Jesus' blood. What is Jesus saying here when he says all things are possible? Of course all things are possible with God. But every time Jesus says this, he's really saying, have faith in God. Realize that all things are possible with God and have faith. Have more faith. Have faith that God will make 
a way. And how would God make a way? I believe that Jesus is pointing specifically to the cross here. After all, it's only a few weeks away. The disciples didn't yet know that Christ would pay the price for their sins, making a way to be saved. Actually, interestingly enough, he'll tell them in a few verses, but they still won't get it. They didn't understand this really until after the resurrection. So what Jesus is saying here is, look, with you, it's impossible. You cannot get into the kingdom of God. But just wait. Because in a few weeks, God will make a way by himself. And that way would be blown wide open like with dynamite. The moment that our Lord, while he was hanging on the cross, cried out with a loud voice, It is finished. The way was open. The way to be saved from the eternal wrath of God would be complete. That's how all things are possible with God. Back in our text, Mark 10, 23. This, is, this next section is very interesting and very convicting. Now here, Peter speaks up. And whenever Peter speaks up, you've got to be a little worried. Um, he tends to put his foot in it more than the rest. But that's what I love about him. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. The first thing I want you to notice here about this statement that Peter makes is that this is a complete exaggeration, okay? Because he says he has left everything to follow Jesus. But the truth is, up to this point, Peter actually hadn't left all that much. And sure, the day would come in many years later where he would sacrifice much. Peter would sacrifice much. He would even die for Jesus. But up to this point, in, in the ministry of Jesus, Peter really hadn't left all that much. After all, the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry was in Peter's hometown. It was in Capernaum. Um, Peter was not separated from his family. And not only that, his brother Andrew was one of the twelve. In fact, he was the one who brought him to Jesus in the first place. So arguably, his closest brother, or the person he was closest to, was traveling with him. And his profession was that of a fisherman. He owned his own boat, so it was the type of thing you could go back to easily if you wanted to. Fish are there. Just, they're just always there. They don't leave. And so, so, in fact, you remember after Jesus died, Peter, in fact, did go back to fishing. And so it really hadn't cost Peter all that much. He was grossly exaggerating his own sacrifice by saying, we have left everything to follow you. But why is Peter exaggerating, you ask? See, I don't think Peter is asking this question out of an innocent or a humble or a meek heart. As we see later, and keep this in your minds, Jesus is going to rebuke him for how he asked this question, and we'll see that later. So I think this question is asked really out of a selfish spirit. And what do I mean by that? Well, this is what I think is happening. Peter correctly notes that Jesus asked this rich young ruler to follow him, and he did not do that. And he also correctly notes that when Jesus asked Peter himself the same question, follow me, Peter did obey. And so did all the, the other disciples. And then Peter notes something else. He goes, okay, that's the difference, number one. Here's difference number two. That guy is rich. I'm not. Right? So I think this 
question is asked a little bit out of envy, a little bit out of frustration. Okay, we followed you, Jesus. Where's the payoff? Where is my payday? When do we also become rich like this young man? In fact, this is how Matthew's gospel puts the question. Peter says, Behold, look, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? What then will there be for us? This is frustration, and we understand this because we also understand that it seems like the rich and powerful of this world tend to be people who don't follow God, right? This is nothing new. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet himself expresses this in Jeremiah chapter 12. This is what he says. I would speak with you about your justice. This is how he's talking to God. I would speak to you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease. That's Jeremiah's frustration, and, and I think that's what Peter is expressing here. And what's more, this is just to add insult to injury, he just heard P Jesus say that with God, all things are possible. In fact, with God, even this rich man can be saved. But instead of causing Peter to rejoice about this, I'm so glad that this rich man can be saved. I think this gnaws at Peter a little bit in his sinful heart. After all, Peter hadn't left, led a life of ease. He's made sacrifices for Christ. He's followed Christ. And in fact, he was even one of the very first to do so. The very first. Why should this man, who had led a life of lavishness and prosperity, a latecomer to the party, in Peter's mind, have a shot at the same reward as he? That's what he was thinking. And you remember, Jesus' ministry is like three years old here, something like that. And to us, this is um, amazingly short, right? He came in at the three-year mark. We're here at the 2,000-year mark. So it um, doesn't sound so much for us like injustice. But to Peter, it sounded very much like injustice. He was the first. This guy came three years later. Who is this bozo? Look at how much I've done. Look at how much seniority I have says Peter. You see what happened here? Peter has now drifted into thinking that he has earned his salvation. He thinks he deserves his reward. He's forgotten that it's by grace. And now he's grumpy that God may bestow the same grace on others who, in his mind, hadn't earned it like he had. And keep that in your mind because we'll come back to that a little later when Christ sets them straight. All right, but before Christ sets them straight, Christ is so gracious. Jesus is, doesn't start out by rebuking Peter for his expectation of reward. The rebuke will come later, but first, Jesus is going to answer the question that Peter asked. Here it is. Verse 29. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Stop right there for a second. Notice Peter is, now Jesus now is talking in general terms. He's not, he, he, he's talking about everybody, not just Peter at this point. And Jesus is acknowledging, of course, that in this life, we may have to give up what we consider wealth for two things, it says in the text, for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake. And this is really a truth that goes back to what we were talking about last week with the rich young ruler. The gospel may cause you to leave your property. The gospel 
may even cause you to leave your family. Not because that's what Jesus says to do, but because your family might kick you out. By the way, the gospel is going to cost you something in this life, and we should all know that. There is always a cost. A call to true faith and discipleship always, a call, always contains a call to forsake something from your former life. If not your family or your house, then maybe your money. If not your money, then your time. If not your time, then the idols of your heart. If not, well, those. But then the pleasures that you can't devote to yourself anymore, those might be forsaken as well. Your ambitions, your priorities, those are just some things that you might be called to forsake for the gospel. But let's look at verse 30. What will happen? What will happen, Jesus, to those who have given up stuff? It's just stuff, right? Who have given up stuff for Christ or the gospel. This is amazing. Verse 30. But that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions. Let's just stop, that, stop right there for a second. This is really surprising. This brings up, by the way, to our fourth step, to true wealth. Um, not only are we to realize that true wealth is found in Christ's blood, but listen to this, realize that true wealth is found in Christ's bride. True wealth is found in Christ's bride. Now in verse 30, Jesus says, we'll receive twice as much, right? Oh, I'm oh, sorry, uh, four times as much, right? No, he said a hundred times as much. A hundred times as much. Listen, Jesus is saying, friends, what you gain by following me far outweighs far outweighs anything you had to leave behind. But when? When will we get these rewards? In the future, right? That's what he says, the future age? Is that what he says? No, he didn't say that. In this present age. In this present age. That means right now. That means not in the next life, in this life, you will get these things. Now what could this mean? Is Jesus preaching some sort of health wealth mantra? Is he... Is he uh, going uh, health wealth on us? No. He's not saying that we'll all be wealthy materially in the present age. My friends, everybody look up for a second. He's talking about the church. He is talking about the church. You see that? Your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is Christ's bride, the church. You will have a hundred times the number of brothers and sisters that you had to leave. And they will love you with a genuine love that comes from God. That surpasses any earthly love. Even from your own family. Their houses will be your houses. Their source of food, your sources of food. Their family, your family. Brothers and sisters, is that not what this, this text says? I want you all to think very deeply about this and, and, and just, just look up just for one more second. And I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. Does your commitment to church, the very body and bride of Christ, reflect the expectation that Jesus has in these verses? Does your commitment to church, the very body and bride of Christ, reflect the expectation that Jesus has in these verses? 
I don't want to give you the wrong idea here. This is not saying that church is just your reward. This is all about you. That's not what this verse is saying. It is your reward, but think about it this way. Can we say to somebody today, perhaps next time you go to the mall, you know, it's going to be a sacrifice for you to come to Christ. You might have to leave your mother, your brother, your sister, your father, your mother to come to Christ. But don't worry about it because you will have brother and sister and mother and father and, and children here at Calvary Baptist Church. Can we say that to people? See, I think we Americans get church completely wrong. We get it all upside down because we think it's all about us. We come thinking, I want to hear good music. I want to get my felt needs met. I want to get my desires tickled. I want to get my ears tickled. I want to meet my social agenda. I want to find a church that's my style. I want to have a sense of well-being. And if I don't think I'm getting anything out of it, then I'm just going to check out because it's all about me. I think this is a completely upside-down view of what church is. Church isn't about you at all. It's not about you at all. We need to repent of our hardness of heart here. Ultimately, it's about us coming to serve God and his people. That is what the church is about. In fact, I just want you to go to, just look down in your Bible to Mark 10, uh, verse 45. Just a few verses down from where we are. This is what Jesus says here. For even the Son of Man did not come to be what? Served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And let me just say that if Jesus came to, be, to serve and not to be served, then why should it be any different for you? Is the slave greater than his master? Should you come to church to be served and not to serve? No, my friends. You come so you can love others. You come so that you can be a blessing to others. Here's what I get out of this text. We come so that we can fulfill what Jesus has promised here. We come so that we can be the fulfillment of what Jesus promised here as the reward. That should be our attitude. The type of Christianity that comes for an hour on Sunday that has nothing to do with your brothers and sisters for the rest of the week, I think is completely foreign to this verse. And look, I know there are special cases, know there are exceptions, but most of the time, you know what that's called? I think that's called being consumed with ourselves. Brethren, I think this passage says that you are the promised reward. You are the promised reward. Your possessions, your fellowship, your love, that's the reward that everyone else has been promised in this passage. Are you living up to that? Is that how you view the church? All right, back to our text. There's a little bit of a footnote thrown in after all of these things, and it says, along with persecutions. Along with persecutions. We should also expect persecutions. All Christians must expect persecutions. And by the way, if it comes in the context of the church, it's not quite as painful. Um, that's another why, reason why it's so important. But see, Jesus isn't sugarcoating anything. This comes as part of the package. You will endure persecutions as a Christian in this life, right? In this present age. 
And we won't have time to do this justice today, but the Bible actually calls persecutions a blessing. And just listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. Blessed are you when people come and insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are to count it a joy to be persecuted, to be treated as our Lord was treated. And again, this is another thing that's completely counter to what the disciples thought. And we rejoice at our persecutions because it means that our reward is great. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The best reward is yet to come. Look back in Mark 10, uh, verse 30. Jesus asks, adds another reward. And in the age to come, what does it say? Eternal life. This is the last step of our five-step plan to true wealth. Realize that true wealth is found in eternal life. Realize that true wealth is found in eternal life. This is what makes it all worth it. All the persecutions, all the giving up of stuff, eternal life. This was indeed what the rich young ruler wanted in the first place so desperately. And by the way, eternal life isn't merely just talking about the temporal extent of your life. It also speaks to the quality of your life. This type of eternal life is not just boundless in time, but it's boundless in joy. It's boundless in fulfillment, in love, and in completeness. You will get this type of eternal life. You will obtain entrance into the kingdom of God. Your citizenship in heaven will be secure. The joys there will be eternal. That's eternal life. The present sufferings here will be a distant memory. The things you gave up here, an afterthought. Quickly forgotten. That's what true wealth is, my friends. Jesus has one last thing to say in verse 31. And this is one of these deceptively simple verses that take hours and hours to understand. But I'm going to try to, try to help you out here. Verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What does this mean? Well, remember back to when we said that Peter's heart, I think, was out of a frustration, out of an envy. And we said that there, um, you know, Peter was angry that people um, who came after him, who sacrificed less than him, could get the same eternal life. And we said that, you know, Jesus was going to rebuke him later. And here it is. This is what Jesus is saying. Peter, who do you think you are? Because who you think ought to be first isn't necessarily who, who God thinks ought to be first. And who you think ought to be last isn't necessarily who God thinks ought to be last. Because Peter, you don't get to decide that. And that's what he's saying. It's not up to you who gets grace. It's up to God. In fact, this is explained more thoroughly in Matthew's account. And let's just flip there. Matthew 19, verse 30. Let's take a look at this. Matthew 19, verse 30. Matthew 19, verse 30. This is the same, uh, same parallel account that we were just in in Mark. But this is in Matthew. And Matthew 19, verse 30 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Sound familiar? Okay. Now look, jump down to Matthew uh, 20, verse 16. Take a look at that. 
Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last shall be, what? First and the first last. Okay. This is familiar. This parable, in between those two verses, explains what that, what that sentence means. So let's just take a look at that. Um, when I'm, I'm not going to have time to read the whole thing, but let me just describe it to you since we're running a little short on time. Jesus tells the story of a landowner. This is a parable of a landowner who's trying to hire day laborers for his vineyard. And he's willing to pay a fair, a fair price, a denarius. Back, that's what it was back then. And he, he goes to where the day laborers are, and he starts hiring them, and he hires them at different times in the day. So he hires some in the early morning, 4 a.m. Then he hires some in the late morning, maybe 10, 11 a.m. Comes back at noon, comes back in the afternoon, picks some people up at 3 p.m., and he picks some up even in the evening. So that's the picture. This is what the, the, the landowner is doing. And evening comes, and now it's time to pay the day laborers. So he starts to pay them starting from the last group he hired first. And he starts to pay them, and each person, as he starts from the last people, the people who work like five minutes, right? He gives them the day wage. He gives them a denarius. And he goes down the line, gives everybody a denarius, and then he reaches the first group, the ones who were there since 4 a.m., the ones that did the most work. And they, surprise, surprise, get a denarius. Now, they weren't overwhelmingly happy with this because they saw everybody else getting a denarius and they thought they deserved better, right? I did more work. I should be paid more. That sounds reasonable. Listen to what they say in verse 11 of Matthew 20. Let's just pick up at verse 11, Matthew 20, and then listen for the landowner's reply. And this is Peter's rebuke, by the way. Here's what the, land, here's what the, uh, the worker said. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and scorching heat of the day. Doesn't sound very fair. But he answered, the landowner answered, and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. Jesus is saying, Peter, stop complaining. You're getting a generous reward. You're getting eternal life. And guess what? That is already far more than you in fact deserve. And who are you to begrudge others the reward simply because you were called first? It really doesn't matter that you think you've suffered more or you've given up so much. That's not the standard. Your sense of fairness is not the standard. You know what, this, you know what the standard is? God's grace. That's the standard. The last shall be first and the first last. God wants to give all his children the same eternal life. We all get it because in the end, it's all by grace anyways. Whether we've done a lot for God or a little for God, whether we've been called to endure much suffering or little suffering, whether we were saved as a little child or as old men on our deathbeds, what a joy. What a privilege that we don't deserve. 
That is true wealth. Well, you want to be wealthy? Today we looked at a five-step plan of how to become wealthy. This is what Jesus considers to be wealth, and we would be wise to take this advice from the wealthiest man alive. Let's review them. Step one, realize that true wealth is not found in earthly possessions. If you're looking there, then you're looking in entirely the wrong place. In fact, wealth can be a hindrance to real, sorry, earthly wealth can be a hindrance to real wealth. Step two, realize that true wealth is not acquired through worldly achievements. True wealth comes only to those who are humble, broken in spirit, and comes to God bringing nothing like a child. Step three, realize that true wealth is found in Jesus' blood. Through faith in Jesus and his atoning blood, God has blasted open a door that makes it possible for us to enter the kingdom of God. That's true wealth. Step four, realize that true wealth in this life is found in Jesus' bride. In this life, your wealth is, your promised wealth is in the church. Do you view the church that way? Do you know that it's your responsibility to be a church that reflects this promise of Jesus? Step five, realize that true wealth is found in eternal life. Eternal life that's not only infinite in time, but in quality. Ultimately satisfying, ultimately fulfilling, jump for joy, eternal life. That's true wealth. So you want to be wealthy? Follow Jesus' simple five-step plan, and you will be truly, unimaginably wealthy, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, I confess that I bow the knee before this passage, and um, it's affected me deeply. Lord, I pray that every one of us would take something from what you've told us here. Understand, Lord, that our eyes are so easily drawn away to the wrong kinds of wealth. Help us to rivet our eyes on what you think wealth is. Jesus is blood, his church, and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, and pray that you would speak to us all this week in our hearts, in our Bible readings, that we might know how to obey you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, give me a minute, and then you can stand.